Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But this morning, and if we can dim the lights just a little bit, uh, this morning uh, we want to look at the fruit of the Spirit that is kindness. So we said, we noted that the first three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, remember the fruit of the Spirit, there's nine aspects to it, love, joy, peace, etc. But they're not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And these are really aspects of the fruit. That is to say, all aspects are to be a part of our lives, not one or the other. But when we looked at these, we noticed that the first three that we looked at had a focus, I think it's true, a focus on our relationship with God. Not exclusively, but I think that's the focus, love, joy, and peace. Whereas the second three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, tolerance, we say patience, but the Greek word really is tolerance for one another, tolerance, uh, when we are provoked. But tolerance, kindness, and goodness really have a focus outwardly. It's a focus with regard to our relationship with others. We are to be tolerant with others. We're to be kind with others. We're to express goodness to others. So there's an otherwardness that I think is appropriate. Last week we looked at tolerance. Today we're going to look at Kindness. When Paul defines love, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter. And I think I told you that story when um, there was a wedding being conducted. I must have been 20 years old at the time. And a wedding was being conducted and the pastor was out of town. He was in Colorado. And a storm had blown in. And so it was snowing. This is in northern New Jersey. It was snowing in Colorado. It was snowing in Jersey. It was just snow. And so the wedding was set to start at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And he was en route. He hadn't made it back yet. And uh, so he had contacted the associate pastor. And I was asked to help him out because uh, he had looked to me to give him a hand in this wedding. And he told him that you're going to have to start the wedding without me because the weather is such that I'm going to be late. But I'll try to get there as soon as I can. And he said, just try to stall for me. So the wedding was supposed to start at 1. It's now 1.15, 1.30, 1.40. We, we waited like what I remember, something maybe an hour, maybe even two hours, trying to give this man as much time as we could to get him from Newark Airport to Bergen County, northern New Jersey. And uh, it, was, it was just going too late. We had to start. So they started the wedding, and one of the fellas was going to read from 1 Corinthians 13. 
And to stall a little more, the fellow who was in charge gave me the Bible to hand to him to read from. And it was the Amplified Bible. So, you know, if you've ever read the Amplified Bible, it defines every word, you know. So it says, love, sacrificial giving, da, 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 is kind. Da, 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 you know? And we're going on like that. And then in the wedding, and he's reading, and all you can hear in the background is, you know, people are just, just laughing. But in 1 Corinthians 13, whenever I come to this chapter, I'm just... You know, I'm transported back to that moment. But the passage says, interestingly enough, the very first definition of love is it is patient and kind. Isn't that interesting? You know, the second set of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, patience, kindness, goodness. And when Paul defines love, the very first thing he says, love is, well, he could have said sacrificial giving. He could have said love is... Um, well, any of the things that he might want to have said. But what does he say? He talks about these two aspects. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love and kindness, by the way, if you have your inserts there in your bulletins. But love and kindness belong together. They are two sides of the same coin. If you're going to love, then you have to be kind. You cannot be loving without being kind. And so while patience or tolerance is really a self-restraint under provocation, especially when we are provoked unnecessarily, when we are innocent of whatever it is we're being challenged by, when we're undeservedly provoked. Tolerance sets in, an ability to sort of endure the mistreatment is a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness, on the other hand, is an active expression of love towards God as well as towards other, others. Tolerance is somewhat inward that endures. Goodness is something, or I should say kindness, is something outward that's expressed. In other words, while patience cannot be seen, tolerance can't be seen, it's just sort of reflected in our actions, kindness always is seen. Kindness is always on display when it is there when it is manifested. So kindness is doing for something for someone out of love. Kindness is an active thing. It is a meeting of what uh, ref- people who think about this stuff, social meeting, social needs or social issues, they use this phrase, it's the meeting of felt needs, where people are genuinely hurting. It could be financially. It could be relationally. It could be psychologically. Wherever they are, uh, it could be lacking uh, a place to sleep. It could be lacking transportation. It's a felt need. It's an obvious need that surfaces. Kindness is a meeting of that need through active deeds that we perform. The Greek word is krestades. And it's used, this is interesting, used in the ancient world, in the Greek-speaking world, to describe wine that is mellow and smooth, that which goes down easy, that which is easily accepted. Acts of kindness are easily accepted. They make one sort of smooth and easygoing. 
is the idea that's captivated in this word. In Matthew chapter 11, here's an interesting thing that I just learned in preparing this, where Yeshua has that wonderful invitation, perhaps the greatest invitation in all the Bible. It says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is Christades. Usually translated here, my yoke is easy, but the word literally means my yoke is kind. My yoke is smooth. My yoke is is mellow. In other words, you can follow me. What I expect of you is something that you can really do because it's a kind yoke that I'll put upon you. This phrase yoke is a rabbinic term. When individuals became disciples of a rabbi in the first century, they took upon themselves the yoke of rabbi so-and-so, which meant that they submitted themselves to this learned man to be his disciple, to be his follower. In the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, those whom we call disciples are followers of their rabbi. That's why they refer to him as their rabbi, their master, their teacher. And so they're submitting themselves to him. And when they take upon themselves the yoke of Messiah, Messiah is telling them, my yoke is an easy one. My yoke is a mellow one. It's a smooth one. It is such because I, by my spirit, will enable you to live out my yoke. I both provide the instruction and the empowerment to do those things that will make you the best kinds of persons you could possibly be. And so, but I found it interesting that he says, my yoke is kind. A passage says, taste and see that the Lord is kind. Kindness is a quality of God. In Psalm 34, verse 8, it says in the Hebrew text, taste and see that the Lord is good. When the Jewish translators of the Hebrew Bible into Greek 200 years before the time of Jesus, 200 years before the time of Yeshua, that is the Septuagint, LXX is the abbreviation for it, because some 70 rabbis are thought to have made that translation. So it's called the Septuagint, 70, and it's abbreviated with the Roman numerals LXX, L is 50, X is 10, 10, 50 and 10, 10 is 70. So in the Septuagint's translation of Psalm 34, 8, which in the Septuagint is actually found in Psalm 33, 9, they translate it, taste and see that the Lord is kind. The rabbis understood the word tov, good, to be equivalent to the word kind. Because of, and the next aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. So goodness and kindness are connected by a hyphen almost. And so to say, taste and see that the Lord is good, is also to say, taste and see that the Lord is kind. He acts in kind ways. In 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is Christodes, that the Lord is kind. Salvation is not merely, see what he says, that you have tasted that the Lord is kind. 
It is one thing to reflect upon the kindness of God cerebrally, to think about the goodness and kindness of God. It's another thing to taste it, to embrace it, to be impacted by it, to experience it. So when the psalmist say, taste and see that the Lord is good, growing up unto salvation, when God saves us, it is an act of his kindness. He's meeting our felt need. What is our felt need? Well, if we look at Genesis chapter 3, we have all fallen from God. Because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, we are all fallen. And their fall has impacted us in four ways. Number one, we're alienated from God, so we are dead spiritually. We are alienated from him, and therefore there's no spiritual life in us. That's why Paul says, the wages of sin is death. We're dead to God. Unless he saves us, there is no hope for us. Unless he makes us alive, it's what theologians refer to as being regenerated. To experience regeneration means to be given new life. And Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Unless he gives us his life, we remain spiritually dead. That's one context in which we are alienated because of our sin. We're alienated from God. But secondly, we are alienated from others. We are also dead socially. Our relationships break apart. Why is there racism in the world? Why is there wars in the world? Why is there conflict among individuals and nations? Because we are dead socially. And in the garden, you see that they hide not only from God, but from each other. They are separated and alienated from each other. And therefore, they begin to cover themselves so that they are not embarrassed to be in each other's presence. Why is that? Because they are dead relationally with others. They're dead socially. And that's another way that sin has impacted us. We are dead spiritually. We are dead socially. We're dead psychologically. The reason we no longer know who we are, because the reason why we don't know where we are going, we don't know what is the meaning of our life, why am I important if I'm important at all. The reason why many define human beings as simply another animal, that can be destroyed in the womb if so necessary is because we are dead within ourselves. We're dead with regard to our own psychological uh, makeup. So we're alienated from God. We're alienated from one another. We're alienated within from ourselves. And we're dead a fourth way. Not only are we dead spiritually and socially and psychologically, we're dead physically. We're separated from nature. We're separated from the world in which we live in. That's why we don't take care of it the way we should. That's why we don't honor it the way we should. The Lord creates the world. It is good. It is good. It is good. And then we're abusive with the world in which we live. And not only the world in which we live, but even our own bodies suffer and die. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans for redemption. Why? Because its leader, its head, Adam, and you and I have sinned, and now nature no longer has a head leading it, responsible for it, taking care of it. And so we abuse the world around us and its resources. So we've died spiritually. We've died socially. We've died psychologically. 
and we've died physically. Unless God is tasted, unless God takes hold of us and we experience his kind act of salvation, all of our felt needs are gone. None of our felt needs are met because everything about us has a need wherever we look. We have a spiritual need. We have a psychological need. We have a social need. We have a physical need. If we don't turn to him, we will not experience the goodness, the kindness of God in salvation. But if we do, then we will have tasted and seen how kind God is that he would save us. Psalm 136 says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. The Septuagint again translates it, for he is kind. Kindness then is a practical thing. It's a meeting of practical needs, even as God meets our own practical needs. We have a need for him. He meets it. We have a need to know who we really are. He meets that need. He gives us meaning. We have a need to be right with one another. When we are members of his body and we are all members of the body of Messiah, he unites us together. We are to be one. Why does Paul keep telling us to pray about unity, work toward unity, preserve the unity? It's because to do otherwise is not to experience the kindness of God because that is why he has come to address all of those kinds of issues. And he's come to heal our physical needs as well. You and I, one day, our bodies will be raised from the dead and we'll have new bodies. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. And we will be made new. All our tears will be washed away. All our strength will be given to us. All our beauty will come back to us in a way that we've never had it before. We will see with new eyes. We will feel with new hearts and new minds. And we will see him who, before whom we will stand, before whom we will bow, and before whom we will worship. Kindness then is practical. It treats things as precious. That's why God acted kindly and acts kindly to you and I. We are precious to him. That's why it says we are purchased with the blood of Messiah. That's how valuable we are to him. He doesn't just redeem us with gold and silver as valuable as that is to us. He redeems us with the blood of his own son. That's pretty precious. That's pretty valuable. And we are precious to him. If we're going to be kind to one another, it starts with recognizing the preciousness of each one of us. We are precious to God. How can we not be precious to one another? If you are so important to God and so loved by God, how could I love any less? If we're going to manifest the fruit, the aspect of the fruit of the spirit, kindness, it starts by recognizing we are all precious. It means that we give without expecting any returns. We give out of the generosity of our hearts. God is kind to the ungrateful and the ungenerous. And those who imitate him, we're told, will become like him. Look at what Messiah says. Love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil ones. Or he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. The Lord says we will be sons of the Most High. To be a son of something is to be like that one. 
Barnabas, the son of encouragement, doesn't mean that his father's name was encouragement. It means he was an encouraging type of person. When the scripture says we'll be sons of the Most High, it means we will be Most High kinds of persons. Put it another way, it means we will be God-like. Put it another way, it means we will be godly. And what does it mean to be godly? It means we are kind to the ungrateful as well as the evil. Some translations say even the wicked. Why? Because God is that way with us. And therefore, if we're going to be like him, then we have to be kind even to the ungrateful and even to the evil ones. That is a supernatural empowerment, is it not? And when we are, the fruit of the Spirit shows up. So we say, I want to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Here it is. Be kind. There's one way. Be kind to the ungrateful. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. That's why God wants us to be kind to the ungrateful, that they would repent. Or do you presume, Paul says in Romans, on the riches of his kindness, do we presume on it, and forbearance and patience, not knowing, get this, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. So if we're going to be like the, the Most High God who has saved us, it means we need to be kind. And if we're going to be kind, it means we're going to be kind to even the ungrateful and the evil. And what is God's hope? That in such kindness being displayed, they would repent of their, ungra- their lack of gratitude and their wickedness. God's kindness is meant to encourage us to be kind. Romans 11 says, note then the kindness And severity of God, talking about the Jewish people, how the Lord had cut off some while others were were, uh, given the grace to believe. And this was so that many non-Jewish people would come to know Messiah. So he says, as a result of this, non-Jewish people were grafted into the olive tree in Romans 11, which is the place of blessing. Israel had a monopoly on the place of blessing. God chose Abraham, and now the place of blessing went through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, and was, for the most part, sort of contained within that grid. But now the Lord opens the floodgates. Many of his own people spurned this place of blessing. And what does God do? He takes non-Jewish people, and he grafts them in to that place of blessing to share fully in the blessings that were given to Israel. But notice what he says. But God's kindness to you, he's speaking specifically to these Gentile believers, but we'll take it generally. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. In other words, God's kindness is meant for us to continue in his kindness. He saved us so that we would be kind to others. He saved us by means of his kindness so that we would continue in his kindness and that we would continue to manifest his kindness. The way to continue in his kindness is to be kind to one another. Ephesians, Paul writes, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Look how this kindness is to manifest itself. Forgiving one another as God and Messiah forgave you. That's how God's kindness was principally demonstrated. He forgave us. And how is our kindness to be principally demonstrated to one another? By forgiving one another. Kindness 
is one of the distinguishing marks of the Ashit Chayel, the woman of valor in the book of Proverbs. You know what a great passage this is? But let me show you something that I learned in this passage. The Hebrew word Chayel, from which we get the words valor or virtue or honor or respectability, it means to be firm or strong. It's the word that's used in a variety of places, but there's no greater place to see it than when the Lord calls Gideon. When the Lord calls Gideon, Gideon is hiding from the Midianites. The Midianites are raiding the land of Israel, and they're taking whatever they can. So Gideon, at night, in a dugout well, is threshing wheat. He's taking the wheat at night. Now, keep in mind, the winds calm down at night, but he does not want to do it during the day because as you throw the grain up to separate the chaff from the wheat and it separates it so you have the wheat. He doesn't want to do it during the day because the Midianites are raiding and he's afraid that they'll see him. So he does it at night in secret. It's a long job because there's hardly any wind and he's hoping that just somehow there'll be a separation. God then appears to him and he says, Gideon, mighty man of valor. And you have to laugh when you read that because he was showing anything but might or valor. He was showing fear and lacked courage. But God saw something in Gideon that Gideon couldn't even see in himself. And it would be Gideon that would decimate 10,000 men, man army of Midianites with 300 men. And he'd lead them into battle with great courage. But it would take a little while for God to get him to that place. This is the same word spoken of of this woman in the book of Proverbs. The Hebrew word means to be firm or strong. And it's oftentimes translated, as you see, valor, virtue, or honor. In Proverbs, it says strength and dignity are this woman's clothing. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. I mean, kindness comes up in a lot of places in the scripture, doesn't it? You know, but these are all great. You want to be a Ashit Chayel, a woman of valor. You want to be an an Ish Chayel, a man of valor or virtue. You have to be one who teaches kindness. And the way that you teach kindness is by acts of kindness. Kindness is meeting meeting felt needs. And I want to give you three examples. The passages are there. You can read of them. But one is David's kindness to Mephibosheth. And you know, this was Jonathan's son. You remember, Jonathan was the son of Saul. And David and Saul were in great conflict for many years. And Saul sought to kill David time and time again. David ran, and he had alongside of him his 32 mighty men, right, who followed him and were loyal to him. These were the outcasts. These were the rough guys. These were the bikers of his day. And they said, we love you, David, man. We got your back. We got you covered. And they stayed with him through thick and thin, even to the time of his kingdom. He was a man that could harness such individuals and also demonstrate belovedness before God, before them, and to bring them into that kind of a relationship. Well, eventually, all David and all, excuse me, Saul and all of his sons die on the hill of Morah in battle against the Philistines. 
But David and Jonathan, David and Saul's son, were the best of friends. They loved each other deeply. And Jonathan would save David's life from his father, Saul. But when all the smoke clears and Saul is gone and the sons are gone and David comes to the throne, he seeks out anyone who is a remainder of Saul's family. And he learns that Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who is a cripple, is still alive. He's being taken care of by one of Saul's servants. And so David calls Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth comes before David, he's fearful. He thinks his life is is over because all of Saul's family is killed and Mephibosheth might very well be a threat to David's throne in behalf of his father, Jonathan. But David is not fearful of that. You read these verses. He says, is three times, is there someone in Saul's family I can show kindness to? That's what David is desirous of, showing kindness. Kindness is meeting felt needs. It's practical. It's demonstrative. It's seen. What can I do for anyone who remains of Saul's family? This is a man of incredible character. No wonder he's called a man after God's own heart. After all that Saul did against him, he's seeking out ways to be a blessing to Saul, even though he sought his life. Look what he does. First of all, he takes Mephibosheth and he says, all the land of your grandfather Saul, he gives to him. He puts it back in Mephibosheth's hands and says, all of his inheritance, all that belonged to your grandfather Saul and your your father Jonathan, it's all yours. And he gives it all to him. Second thing he does, he says, and you will eat with me at my table every day. Not only does he give him the land back, but he tells him, you're going to eat in the palace the king's food. Not just in the palace, but with me by your side. And lastly, he takes Saul's servant, Ziba. Ziba was Saul's servant, and now he tells Ziba, who is taking care of Mephibosheth, you are to continue to take care of him. You are to be Mephibosheth's servant and all of your household. He had 15 sons and 27 servants, Ziba had. All of them now belong to Mephibosheth, and they are to work Saul's property, and everything that is gained on that property, whether there's grains, whether there's fruits, vegetables, and if those things are sold in the marketplace, all of the money that is garnered from that property belongs to Mephibosheth. You guys will work the land for him, and he inherits everything from the land. That's what David how David shows kindness to Saul's remaining descendant. Read those passages. It is really stirring when you look at what David did. The second is what Paul says about the apostles that sought to bring the good news. He says in 2 Corinthians, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way This is how they commended themselves in service to the others as God has called them. 
We have endured great endurance in many afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Watch this. By purity, knowledge, tolerance, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. What an incredible passage. If anyone is going to criticize us, me, or any of the apostles who have served alongside of me, or those that I have called like Timothy or Titus, be aware that we have never sought to put an obstacle in anything that we have done. There is no fault with anything we have done in our ministry. You cannot point the finger at us. And that is because we commended ourselves in every way and it was seen in that we've endured great hardships. We've endured great afflictions. We've endured great calamities and beatings, imprisonments, sleepless nights. I think it's amazing how Paul is not embarrassed. He's not afraid to lay out what price he has paid to be of service to the Corinthians and others. And he reminds them, it's not just enduring hardships, but we have been patient and kind. And the Holy Spirit has been evident, and we have genuinely loved you. But notice that, with kindness, he brings in there as well. And then Yeshua himself. This is a fascinating passage when I was thinking about kindness in Matthew chapter 15, where he feeds the 4,000. Again, you have to look up this passage. In the interest of time, I won't read it to you, but check this out. In that section where he is going to feed the crowd, the first thing we read of in verse 32, it says that he has compassion on the crowd. And then he says, I am unwilling to send them away hungry. And then he says that he took, or it says, he took the seven loaves and the fish He gave thanks, he broke them, he gave to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So here's where we're concluding. We ask the question, how can I develop kindness? And here it is, right here. The first thing we need to do, and by the way, Colossians, Paul tells us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, So it's important that we look out for the interests of others. Now, keep in mind what Yeshua did. Number one, he was moved with compassion. Number two, he was unwilling to allow the crowds to go home hungry. And number three, he took the bread and the fish and he multiplied them and enabled the disciples to feed them. So here's how you develop kindness. Number one, you have to cultivate a loving heart. Yeshua said, I have compassion on the crowd. That's where it starts. Are the people precious to us? We talked about that earlier. Yeshua saw the crowd as precious. We have to love them. There must be love. If we're going to see this community one to the Lord, we're going to to have a whole lot of resistance. You know that, right? You know that. But if we're going to break through that resistance, it has to start with a loving heart. We have to love these people. You know, one of my former students, I've mentioned her before, Emily, is headed over to Pakistan. She's going to be studying there. She has such a love for the Pakistani Muslim people. It wasn't enough just to work among Pakistanis in Chicago when she was at Moody. It wasn't enough to find a Pakistani community in New York City or Los Angeles or where perhaps they had, no, 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 I have to go to Pakistan. 
I, I don't know what to say about that. But the only way that can happen, you have to love these people, right? I mean, you have to love these people. And she does. She loves these people. And some of whom that she has shared with us about their love for Messiah are incredibly loving people, despite the challenges they face. And keep this in mind, when she was sharing with us, I think she said every Friday, they pray for Israel and the Jewish people, the folks that she was with. We have to have a loving heart for the most unloving people, if we're so called, to reach out to them. Yeshua looked at the crowd and he said, I have compassion. That's where it has to start. It means we have to focus on the needs of others. I love what he says. I am unwilling to allow them to go home hungry. He was determined in his will, not his feelings, but his will to say, I will make it for them. I will provide for them. If we're going to reach this community, if we're going to reach out this community, we have to be determined to do that. We have to be concerned that it's going to take steps and strategy, and we need to to employ those strategies. We have to be willing and determined to see that we convey the message. None of us saves anyone. The Lord does the saving, but we are his spokespersons. We are his mouthpiece. We need to speak the words of life. We must make a difference, but to do that, you have to want to. And you have to want to. You have to want to. Because Yeshua's marching orders is go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Make disciples. We have to want to do what he tells us. And so Yeshua said, I am unwilling and we must have the same attitude. We are unwilling to allow these people around us to go spiritually hungry. We have to meet that need. And we have to use whatever we have to bless others. Yeshua took the, the fish and the loaves. By the way, I didn't fo- says, but he focused on the needs of others. I will not let them go away hungry. He saw their need. So how do you become kind? You have to have a loving heart that sees others as truly precious. Listen, I struggle with this too. You know, when I learn these things and I put it together, I say, yes, yes, yes. But don't think that I'm telling you what I've already arrived at. I haven't. I'm arriving with you. But the Lord has showed me things. And I'm sharing them with us. And so we need to cultivate a loving heart for others, for they are precious to God. We need to see what the need is. We know their spiritual need. We need to be willing and determined to do what we need to do. We need to use what we have to bless others. So what do we have? What gifts, spiritual gifts has God given us? This is why it's so important that we know what they are and we use them. Because no one or a handful of individuals can make the difference in this community. We all have to figure out where do we fit and we have to fit. What has God given us? What talents? What natural abilities? What vision has God given us? What ideas do we have? We all have different things to give. But we have to look around and say, what are the fish and loaves that God has given us that we must use to meet that need?
And we have to be willing, like Yeshua was, to suffer loss. Fish was taken and bread was taken and given around. Yeshua's life was taken and it was given around. We too must take what we have and give it out freely if we're going to make a difference. But more importantly, I suppose, if we're going to be kind and if we're going to demonstrate and manifest the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and tolerance and kindness. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.